This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Later in the hour, the, the sky is filled with birds making their way south for the season. Do you need help IDing that backyard brown bird? Or have you spotted something you haven't seen before and you'd like to talk about it? We're here to help. Give us a call with your birding questions. Our number, 844-724-8255, 844-SCI-TALK, or you can tweet us at SciFry. But first, President Trump and congressional leaders have spoken repeatedly about doing away with, with what they call the previous administration's war on coal. And they're introducing policies that downplay environmental concerns in an attempt to be more friendly to the fossil fuel businesses. But in some cases, the key decisions are not the ones Washington makes, but the ones made by big banks and institutional investors. And some of those financial decision makers have decided to divest their investments away from fossil fuels. Joining me now to talk about that is uh, Bill McKibben. He's co-founder of 350.org author of a recent op-ed in the New York Times talking about financial players and the environment. Uh, Bill McKibben joins us via Skype. Welcome back to Science Friday. I wrote best of the season to you. Thank you very much. Does banking and investment have a lot to do with energy policy? Can they influence energy policy? Yeah, well, you know what they say, follow the money. Um, Right now, of course, uh, politics is making it difficult to deal with climate change in D.C., but it's not stopping cold all the work that's going on. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting developments in the last, even in the last few months. You know, we started this campaign asking people to, asking institutions to divest their holdings in fossil fuels about five years ago. It's gone very well. It's become the largest of this kind of a campaign ever with about $5 trillion in endowments and portfolios already committed. But man, is it gaining steam now. Uh, in, uh, in November, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is the biggest pool of money on the planet, uh, said it was beginning to divest from fossil fuel. That's particularly interesting because they made all their money in oil, you know, that North mm-hmm. Sea oil that they have up there. Ara. And uh, uh, in essence, they said, we're taking our winnings from this fossil fuel casino, we're cashing out and we're going to go find some other game to play in. The smart money is increasingly moving in that direction. Uh, Just this past week, since I wrote that piece in the Times, we had what may be the biggest news yet. Uh, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo on Tuesday announced that the state's common fund, its huge pension fund, $200 million, $200 billion, would no longer be making new investments in fossil fuel and would begin the process of decarbonizing its entire portfolio. Half an hour after he made that announcement, Scott Stringer, who is the comptroller of the city of New York and in charge of its almost $200 billion pension fund, said they were going to do the same thing. Uh, Those are two of the 20 largest funds on the planet. So uh, the same day that in Washington they were passing the tax bill that gave ludicrous tax breaks to the fossil fuel industry in the world center of finance, New York, they were saying, no, we don't think Mm. this is good business anymore. I don't have $200 billion if I'm a a normal folk. Can can, can a little investor make, make a difference at all? Sure, people are are have been divesting themselves and in such numbers that all the big financial firms have set up fossil free funds 
Uh, and of course, what's interesting is that over the last five years, those funds have done a lot better than those that were exposed to fossil fuel because fossil fuel hasn't been performing. The bottom dropped out of the coal business. Almost all the big players went bankrupt. And the oil and gas business is in the dumps, too. Why? Because smart investors looking ahead can see where the future lies. I mean, Elon Musk is starting to build cars in volume that do not need you to put petroleum in the side in order for them to work. Uh, that's a real threat to the way that we've been doing business for a very long time. Not to mention the fact that, you know, the melting Arctic, the blazing hills of California, the uh, the dissolving corals around the world, those are putting huge pressure, if not on Donald Trump, on the rest of world leaders to begin to actually do something about this. Not to mention the fact that with every passing month, the cost of a solar panel gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. The fossil fuel industry, which has been an awful good business for the last 200 years, isn't a good business going forward. And the smart hmm. money is heading for the exits now. But is the money going into green energy as it heads to the exits? Some of it. Some of it's, I'm sure, just going into, you know, I don't know what, you know, investing in bowling hmm. alleys or pizza places or something. But some of it, yes, is definitely going into investing in green energy because that's where the returns are going to be. I mean, think about the scale of economic activity that comes hmm. from having to make the transition for the entire energy system off of fossil fuel and onto something mm -hmm. else. The upside potential is enormous. I want to bring in another guest. Akshat Rathi is a reporter for Quartz based in London, and he recently wrote about China's carbon market, and he joins us by phone. Welcome to Science Friday. Thanks for having me, Ira. Hey, explain what a carbon market is and how it works and why China is an important player here. So, um, just for reference, China is the biggest emitter of greenhouse gases on the planet today. About 30% of all emissions come from China. And what it's doing with the carbon market uh, is a simple mechanism. It's putting a price on carbon emissions so that companies can't pass the environmental costs of those emissions to the public the way they do today. And why? And, and the why? way the carbon market works, the yeah. way the carbon market works is that you would have, say, a power plant, mm -hmm. uh, which emits maybe about 10 million tons of carbon dioxide uh, each year. It would tell uh, the government that this is the amount uh, we are emitting currently. The government would say um, that we are going to give you a, a certain limit. You can only emit up to 9 million tons. We'll give you that for free. The, the 1 million tons on top, we'll uh, put a price on that. And if mm -hmm. you want to continue to emit, you will have to pay money to do it. Uh, otherwise, you can implement policies or technologies that would reduce those emissions, and then you don't have to pay us any money. So, so it's, it's sort of a cap, it's a cap and trade system. Then it's and, a cap and trade. System. And, well, well right. will this make the Chinese companies overall emit less? Yes, I mean that's the hope. Uh, this is a market-friendly way of trying to reduce emissions. Um, once you start putting a price on carbon. Um, there is more incentive to um, not put it out into the atmosphere, as you can do today, because there's no price uh, on emissions. And once that price comes in, um, it disincentivizes uh, uh, companies to go on uh, emitting as they do today. Mm -hmm. Bill McKibben, what is your reaction to this? Is this a good idea? China's doing all kinds of interesting things right now. Uh, uh, they're fooling around with carbon markets and, and seeing how that works, although they've dropped back the scale a little bit from what they'd initially proposed. They're also putting up 
sun and wind power at extraordinary pace. Of course, some of that's driven by the fact that they managed to make their cities all but unlivable by burning so much fossil fuel. But it's also driven by the fact that they know that climate change is an existential threat. I mean, Pearl River Delta, where their trillion dollars worth of manufacturing capacity is located, is a meter or two above sea level. That's what mm-hmm. they call it, Delta. Akshat, do you, do you uh, think other countries will also join? Are there, uh, you say China is the biggest player. Are there other bigger players that might do the same thing? Definitely. Um, just just the sheer scale of emissions that China um, is part of today. And yes, they have only uh, applied this to the power sector. But even by just applying it to the power sector, they've already become the biggest carbon market. And look, um, at a time when the American government is sending signals to not act on the climate, if a bigger emitter than America comes on, on board and uh, says that we are going to try and do our best uh, to reduce those emissions, that's a very strong signal to the world that uh, the world apart from America is very serious on climate action. So this is more than just talking about it. This is actually showing that they're serious by taking action. That's right. And and China needs to do it because, um, you know, just as uh, Bill said, uh, they've been burning fossil fuels and it is harming their own people. Um, you, you hear these stories about smog in Beijing or smog in Shanghai, and um, those images are real and those are being felt by the people. So even though it has a strong-handed government, it needs to keep its people happy. And reducing fossil fuel emissions uh, mm-hmm. does, uh, does work in their favor. Bill, can this be applied to American companies? Or... Well, what can be applied is this kind of pincer action. Everybody's, you know, we, we can't do the most obvious thing that we should be doing, which is having a big concerted global action. We got a little bit of ways there with the Paris Accords, but of course, Trump's doing everything he can to undercut that. So in the absence of a big global push to deal with what is, after all, the first truly global problem we ever faced, we instead have to find strategic points in which to work. And China is one of them. And that's why uh, that the stuff that's being described that's happening in Beijing is a real interest. And, it, and just as they're the biggest emitter, New York is the biggest source of money uh, on the planet for uh, uh, fossil fuel and everything else. If the center of the world's financial markets is sending the signal that we don't want to do this anymore, it's going to get harder and harder for the Exxons and Chevrons of the world to to keep out there finding more fossil fuel that we don't need and can't burn. Akshat, you agree? And I, Yeah, and I would jump in. I would say that actually uh, it's already happening in America. California is currently part of a carbon market that includes California and, and a handful of provinces in Canada, uh, and they trade emissions. Um, and, and California, as we know, is one of the, uh, the best states um, um, on green action, on climate action. And so uh, if California is showing to America that this is something that they can make, uh, make it work within their economy and keep the economy growing, uh, it's, again, a very strong signal for other states to, um, to step up and be part of this market. You know, mm-hmm. Even if the federal government has certain uh, policies it can pass, states are quite powerful in what they can do um, to reduce emissions. Akshak Rathi of Quartz and Bill McKibben, environmental advocate and co-founder of uh, 350.org. Thank you both for taking time to be with us today.
Thanks for having us. Have a happy holiday. When we come back, we're talking all about birds. Uh, what feathered friends are flying overhead right now? We'll answer your birding questions. It's our annual National Audubon Society bird count, winter bird count, Christmas bird count coming up. If you've got questions about what you're seeing in your backyard, we do want to know what you're seeing in your backyard. Give us a call, 844-724-8255. Maybe you're out there doing the bird count. Give us a call or send us a tweet at SciFry. We'll be right back after this break. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. The temperatures are dropping. The days are short, which means it's time for the winter bird migration and time for the flocks of birders to start making their birding list. And bird nerds around the country will be participating in the Audubon's annual Christmas bird count, tallying up what they're seeing. And that's what we do every year about this time. We become part of that bird count. And for the rest of the hour, the hour is going to the birds. We're going to talk about what birds you should keep an eye out for this holiday season and into the new year. And we want to know what birds you've been seeing. Our number, 844-724-8255. Every year we get some really interesting commentary of what's going on in bird feeders and people's homes and backyards and uh, their wildlife areas around there. So give us a call, 844-724-8255. Or you can tweet us. That's the right time to say that. You can tweet us. At Cy, how, how unusual, Cy Fry, S-E-I-F-R-I. Let me introduce my guests. Drew Lanham is professor of wildlife ecology at Clemson University in Clemson, South Carolina, and Laura Erickson, author of the National Geographic Pocket Guide to the Birds of North America. She's uh, based out of Duluth, but she's here today in our CUNY studios. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you. Hi, Ira. It's appropriate to tweet this time, Right. It's always appropriate to do. Drew, what birds have you been seeing out there in South Carolina so far this year? Well, you know, Ira, it's uh it is winter. Didn't feel much like it on our Christmas bird count, which we uh we just had this past Tuesday the nineteenth. But um the usual white throated sparrows and savannah sparrows, the winter the winter sparrows that have that have moved in and um and then swelling numbers of, of residents. Uh, things like common grackles and and eastern meadowlarks that uh, that we normally see in in some mm-hmm. of our our agricultural areas and and then waterfowl waterfowl are beginning just beginning to push to push south. Wow! Uh, and Laura, I know you hail from Minnesota. Yeah, sure. You betcha. <laughs> you betcha. <laughs> I spent many years in Minnesota. Uh, how, how there's something going on with the owls this uh, year in Minnesota? It's not just Minnesota. We're having a really wonderful snowy owl, what they call an eruption year. So they're turning up in all kinds of places, and it's been really exciting to follow them. But Since we I'm also- down here, Laura. <laughs> I'll do my best. If I see one, I'll say, go to Drew's. <laughs> but um, Duluth's Christmas bird count, I don't have all the numbers yet. They did that on, on the 16th. But they did have a boreal owl, which is a tiny, tiny little owl, and they're really exceptional. That was one of the rare times that hmm. they've showed up as early as the, the bird count. Let's, let's talk about this project studying the snowy owls called Project Snowstorm. It's, what is that about? They have uh, put 
satellite transmitters on snowy owls, and they have a battery that is charged. It's a solar battery. Mm -hmm. And they track these individual birds that show up this year. They have funding to, I think, be tracking eight of them from just Wisconsin. And they do them for wherever they have uh, funding. And they've started, they do a lot in like Massachusetts and New York. And they're discovering all kinds of things about snowy huh. owl migration that we never knew before. Such as? Well, we used to think that snowy owls came south on years when the lemming population had crashed in the Arctic and they just didn't have food. But we were starting to question that for, you know, several decades because we'd get individuals that returned year after year after year just in the Duluth Harbor and they were banded so we knew they were the same birds. But we're also finding they have humongous reproduction in years when the lemmings are highest and that's when they produce so many babies and they become kind of territorial in the winter and the babies get pushed out and that's when they come south. Wow. Uh, Drew, the Christmas bird count happens, as I said before, every year this time. Were there any any interesting trends from last season, the 2016 season, that you could yeah. report on? Yeah, you know, Ira, the, th- the thing is that um, as, as you go out to the same habitats year after year, and oftentimes you'll have the same teams, um, so you divide that 15-mile diameter circle up into sectors, and you have teams that go out, and so folks who are familiar with not just the habitat but changes in it um, give us some good indication of, of of what's happening. So this was really the the first year in in quite a few years that we've had decent weather. It was more like the, a spring count almost than a Christmas count. The temperature was up around 60, um, and so people were very comfortable out there counting birds. But one of the trends that we had this year, probably the most I don't know, I wouldn't call it a disturbing trend, but from a, comp- a compiler's point of view, man, it was hard to come by white-breasted nuthatches. You know, that little yank-yank mm-hmm. yank bird, that uh, little upside-down passerine that many of us find at our feeders, you know, it was hard to come by that bird this year. And last year, we didn't have that issue. Last year, it was more brown-headed nuthatches um, that we had had trouble mm-hmm. finding. So, you know, so, so for some of those common birds like nuthatches that you would expect to find and not seeing those birds or hardly seeing them this year was... Um, was a was a little troubling, but you know that's that's a snapshot in time. What gives us the real the real indication of of what's happening is when we begin to look at the long standing trends of the of the Christmas bird count. So, you know, we we hold out hope, for example, for things here like northern Bob White. You know, Bob poor Bob White, and and that bird we haven't seen on our counts here on the Clemson count um, in over a decade. And, um, and and there's habitat here, and of course that's a bird that's familiar to many people across the United States that's just experienced these tremendous declines. So you keep looking, you keep looking, and you see little trends like the nuthatch from year to year, um, abundant last year at least by our count, hard to find this year, and bobwhite quail that are you know almost like mm-hmm. dodos it seems. They're just hard, harder and harder to find. All right, let's get, go to the phones. We have a lot of people who are, who are calling in with phone calls. Let's go to Rosemary in Evansville, Indiana. Hi, Rosemary. Are you there? Well, I tried again. Rosemary in Evansville, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hi, go ahead. Okay. My question is this. I live in southwestern Indiana, and the other day, uh, I live in the country with a lot of hawks and other kinds of predatory birds around. 
And in the middle of the afternoon, I heard a bird I had never heard before. And I couldn't, it was very loud and as if, you know, like a hawk sounds in terms of the volume. But this bird went, ready? (laughs) (laughs) Oh! Oh! And I've never, ever heard anything like that. And with changes in migratory patterns, I wondered if this was a bird that your guests could identify and tell me what it is. Uh, Laura, is that in your pocket guide? (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't have sounds. Um, Do you have a guess, Drew? I don't. Wow, sounds like a bird in pain um, (laughs) um, to me. You know, if if I could ask our caller, any other sort of identifying characters, what what sort of habitat was the bird in? So, you know, we go through this sort of, you know, birder uh, investigation, sort of this reductionist thing. What kind of habitat was the bird in, by chance? Country, so I'm surrounded by fields and trees. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of hawks, uh, other big predatory birds, um, and then of course we have the standard run-of-the-mill small birds uh, that come through southern Indiana or live here all the time. Um, but this is—we have a lot of owls. Um, but I didn't think it was an owl because it's in the middle of the day. Yeah, you know um, that I'm—I'm I'm beginning to guess. Uh, that, that weird sounds oftentimes, as you were talking about predatory birds, and then you were talking about sounds, I was wondering if you were going to ask about blue jays maybe imitating a bird. But I'm going to go. I'm going to go the corvid route. I'm going to go the crow route, and wonder, wonder if you may have been hearing one of the many crow calls. Wow. Um, they can do some peculiar things because they're extraordinarily intelligent, as we know, and uh, and have quite the vocabulary. So that's one guess that All I right. would put out there. All right. Thanks the for. Fir- the first part of it sounded like a sandhill crane, but then mm. the second part doesn't at all. But yeah. that uh, so that strengthens Drew's hypothesis that it was a crow <laughs> mimicking a couple of things at the same they time. They are very smart, aren't those crows? Our friends over at uh, the Brains On podcast, the podcast where kids interview scientists, uh, looped us in with a few young birders who have questions for our guest today. Let's uh, let's see if we can go to those questions. Are they on the line? Kids on the line, let's go right to them. Matthew, go ahead. Hi. Go ahead, Matthew. My name is Hi. My name is Matthew and I'm from Wheaton, Illinois. And my question is, how do birds know where to fly in the winter? Oh my goodness. Ah, great great question. Uh, you know, the the thing is that birds have this bird brains um, are wondrous things. So if anyone ever calls you a bird brain, first of all, say thank you for that. So there's for some birds, um, it's, there's this thing called hardwiring. A lot of us think of it as the word is instinct, Matthew. And so um, that birds are sort of programmed um, in part by day length. So we just went through our winter solstice yesterday, and so um, as a lot of the birds up north, as day length begins to shorten. Um, think of um, certain cues are turned on to help those birds move south, understand that they need to move south. So that's one of the ways that some birds move. So they, they kind of have to move, you know, and, and part of that, too, is related to resources that are available, food that's available for the birds and the like. So over long periods of time, these migratory patterns and pathways have, mm-hmm. have evolved, have developed in these birds. But then, you know, and, and Laura's lucky because she's still up there. She's up there in Duluth where you guys have got lots of common golden eye, right, Laura? Right. Yeah. So, I, you know, you think about waterfowl and ducks and geese, and those birds are cued to move in part by open water. 
Um, where So for a lot of times when those birds that we call facultative, that's a big word I know, but that they can make the choice to move, that they're pushed by certain cues, not necessarily instinctual or hardwired. So thinking about those ducks that are still in places that it's really cold and the days are short, but they're still open water. And then we begin to talk about things like climate change and, and global warming. And part of the reason that we're not getting as many ducks and waterfowl here in the south is that a lot of those birds are short-stopping. That is, that they are maybe coming south, but not as far south, because they're still finding open water. Because mm, it's warming. Warming's lasting. Water's lasting longer. Yes, open. indeed. All right, let me get another question in from uh, Sloan in Vancouver. Hi, Sloan. Go ahead. Hi. My Hi. name is Sloan. <laughs> I am eight years old. I live in North Vancouver, Canada. I love peregrine falcons and all birds of prey. My question is, what can I and others do to protect endangered birds of prey? Hmm. That's a really important question and an interesting one. The ways we help birds are sometimes by supporting programs that help them, um, by teaching other people about them. Peregrine falcons are doing much, much better today than they were when I was eight years old, when they were wiped out of the whole eastern United States. No more were breeding in the eastern United States, and very few were breeding anywhere even in Canada except way far away from people. They've done really well because people have gotten involved in cities and outside of cities, helping to uh, teach ones to grow up in the wild whose parents were falconers' birds that were taking care of them in captivity. And those have become wild, and we have way, way more mm. now. Mm -hmm. Let's go to the phone. Let's go to Dave in, uh, in Minnesota. Hi, Dave. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi. Thank you very much. Um, so I live in, live in West Central Minnesota, and I've been here a few years, not many years, but I've watched the geese annually in the fall, late fall, fly south. And during the day, they just fly south more or less, and then in the evening, they'd go any direction you want looking for water to stay overnight. The last two or three weeks, and particularly today, I've seen flock after flock fly due north, or very close to due north. So what was going on, and that's the first question, and the second question is sort of a, my own weird hypothesis, that do some birds find direction by basis of the magnetic properties of the earth, and if that's weakening, would that disrupt hmm. Migrating birds, okay. such as geese. Right, let me remind everybody this is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International. Oh, okay. Let me ask uh, Laura from Minnesota. Why are they flying north? Geese learn their migration routes from their parents. And in Minnesota, we have quite a few geese that are pretty much non-migratory. And they wherever they can count on having some open water in the winter, we have geese year-round now, mm. and that probably will be increasing with climate change. But the ones in um, your area may just be moving back and forth from fields where they're feeding by day to where they have a good place to spend the night in water. 
Mm-hmm. We caught up uh, with Bill Doyle from the Santa Rosa Christmas Bird Count in Sonoma, California, one of the areas hard hit by wildfire this fall. They went out to count their birds last weekend, and here is his report. Our species count this year was the lowest it's ever been historically. We just missed an awful lot of species that uh, we normally would expect to see. That wasn't really a surprise because it's been going down year by year anyway. There are so many other impacts on birds besides the accidental ones like this fire. So um, whether or not it's due to the fire is really hard to say. It's certainly due to human impact of one kind or another. Drew, any comment on that? What we know about the effects of the fires on bird populations? Yeah, Ira, you know, it's it's interesting because, of course, those catastrophic fires that, that we saw out there have, have taken away a lot of the scrub habitat, obviously, that's, uh, that, that is actually meant to burn, but then a lot of the forest habitat, too, in these, these communities that we call pyrophytic, which is which is fire loving the the issue is that you know we are, we're in such weird cycles of climate now um, with warm warmer temperatures that exacerbate um, those fires. So what happens with birds and and um, they mentioned that there were lower numbers of many species is that often you're going to see these dramatic changes. You're going to see the dramatic changes with with lower numbers of some birds as scrub habitats, for example, are, are simply raised to the ground. They're erased or forested habitats um, become sparse or burned down or change dramatically. So I would predict, though, that that as as the habitats uh, begin to regenerate, you'll begin to see different bird communities. Um, let's remember that forests and scrublands all across this, 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 this continent are really maintained by fire. Again, the issues are the catastrophic nature of fire and, of course, the, the damage um, mm. and, and destruction to humans. So we would expect changes, um, some temporary and short-term, others long-term. All right. We're going to come back and talk more with uh, Drew Lanham and Laura Erickson. It's our Christmas bird count this hour on Science Friday, 844-724-8255. Lots of people want to talk birds. You can also tweet us. See what I did there? At SciFry. We'll be right back after this break. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. This hour, we're talking about birding with the famous Christmas bird count. We've been talking with my guests, Drew Lanham and Laura Erickson. And uh, now I want to bring on master birder Judith Bailey, joining us out near a lake in Austin, Texas. Hi, Judith. Hi there, Ira. So what are you, what are you seeing out there, Judith? Give us, give us a field report. Well, um, I have been out uh, searching the three little lakes in our neighborhood, and uh, it's been a rainy, cold Friday, and um, we've had some north wind, and I've had some new birds that have been showing up, so that's a a fun thing. Um, We've got wood ducks and gadwall and northern shovelers, canvasback, ringneck ducks, lesser scop and then today i saw three female hooded mergansers which is a real sort of coup for our neighborhood why is that well um they're they're kind of secretive ducks and they like little ponds and um so we you know i kind of i guess we fit the bill we've got a little pond and there Mm. they were now i know you've been chasing a few birds down in uh, south texas any, I have. Any luck spotting them? Tell us about that. Well, um, I, 
Austin's not too far from um, the the border down. Uh, we we like to go to Laredo, and there are two birds, specialty birds that um, are normally found in Mexico and Central America. One is a red bill pigeon, and the other one is a white collared seed eater. And there are not very many of them that show up in Texas, and so you know from like February and March people go down to the border and and try to find these birds and i've been down there probably six or seven times and have had a local guide and we go looking for these birds and so far i haven't seen either one hmm. sorry to hear that um you've you've uh, done a bird count near the coast of texas what trend have you seen there um well, I have been going to a, a place called Choke Canyon State Park, which is uh, south of uh, San Antonio and a little bit north of Corpus Christi. And um, uh, I have seen, I guess I've been down there nine years now, and the when the Eagle Ford shale oil boom started, uh, it included this area around the state park. And you know, we have the same effects probably of climate change that other areas in the United States have. But hmm. this one, uh, what I have seen and others have seen is that the noise pollution is the thing that is causing the big decrease and drop in, in the bird birding population. Huh. The, huh. They can't, the, the trucking is so loud that, you know, the birds can't hear each other. And so, the population is just the species have gone down and the numbers of the species have gone down this year um, normally we see um, lots of uh, Harris hawks which are common to the area and scissor tail flycatchers and there there were none this year Wow all that trucking noise well uh-huh Judith uh, good luck to you in your bird counting and uh, we wish you better luck Thank you so much. We're going to keep looking. All right. Judith Bailey, master birder and field trip leader with the Travis Audubon Society based out of Austin, Texas. We have another question coming in from our friends at the Brains On podcast, the podcast where kids interview scientists. On the line, we have uh, James from Malibu, California on the line. Hi, James. Hi. How are you? Hi. Go ahead with your question. Um, My question is, why are some birds shyer than the others? And I'm wondering this because in my backyard I feed birds um, a lot, and we have some, some a lot of types of seed. And some will only take a second or two, and some will pick up the seeds and see which one is heaviest. And you know they're real bold. Yeah. So some will come right up to you, and some are very shy. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a, that's a that that's a that's a great question, Judith. Why are some birds shy? Well, uh, you know. Some birds, like uh, the jays, are just bold by nature, and then there are, you know, smaller birds, little, little finches, and, you know, I, I think they're just probably right. shyer simply because of their size. Let me ask Laura. Laura, what do you think? It, 
varies not only between species, like she said, the jays can be very, not very shy, except at my feeders, the jays run off as soon as I go in the backyard to fill the feeder. They keep an eye on me, and as soon as it's filled and the coast is cleared, they're back. But even with little birds like chickadees, there's an enormous amount of variation among the individuals. I used to open my window and put my hand out with mealworms, and chickadees would come to my hand to get the mealworms. Some would sit on my hand and weigh all the mealworms to get the heaviest one, and some would not even alight. They'd just grab it and fly off. I had one chickadee who was the boldest in one way. He or she would tap on the window to get my attention when it wanted mealworms. I'd crank open the window, but that chickadee would never alight on my hand. It wanted me to put my hand up right next to the branch where it wanted to sit. And so it wasn't afraid of my hand, but it must not have liked the feeling of human flesh on its feet or something. It would never land on my hand. Well, to get birds to eat out of your hand, you must be the Mary Poppins of birds. (laughs) (laughs) You you know, Ira, here's the the cool thing. And and Laura talks about that variation um, within species. And um, there's there's a wonderful book, The Genius of Birds by Jennifer Ackerman, who... Um, and she features Laura in, in that book, but she talks about these bird brains and this individual variation. So, you know, think about bird personality. I like to call them birdenalities. And that um, what we're learning about bird brains, again, is incredible. So, you know, yeah, shy species and wary species, but also how birds are exposed mm-hmm. to humans. So one of the issues that we have on our bird count is um, whether or not the, the ducks have been hunted, whether they've been been pressured Um, the previous week or a few days before. So a lot of those ducks won't show up on perfectly suitable habitat because they have learned they've been pressured, and so they've become shyer. Um, On the other hand, when you have ducks that have not been pressured, um, who have not been um, hunted over in in many instances, then um, they tend not not to be as shy. So all of this variation is 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 something that's wonderful to keep track of, and I'm glad our uh, mm-hmm. our young birders are doing that. All right, I'm going to cycle through as many phone calls as I can because we have the lines are full, so I'm not going to talk about it. Let's go, let's go right to it. Let's go to James in Watertown, Connecticut. Hi, James. Yes, it's Jamie. Hi, I'm sorry. I, I want to let you know that the bird I spotted um, two weeks ago, the beginning of December, was a full tilt male bald eagle, uh. and he had a wingspan as long as I can put my arms out. He was right over my head. And so I was just curious, is it unusual to see a bald eagle this time of year in northwest Connecticut? I'm up in the northwest corner of Connecticut. Do they migrate or do they winter over in this area? Yankee eagle, yes. <laughs> well, they're, they're migratory. Um, so you've got, you've got birds that are moving, but um, you will have bald eagles that will hang around um, okay. there. So, yeah, she's seeing, okay. she could be seeing either one of... Uh, several birds. Let's go to Dan in uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Hi, Dan. Hey, uh, thanks for taking the call. Yeah, interesting. Last week, a big flock of uh, medium-sized birds uh, uh, were just north of town, have some some uh, Savisbury bushes. Thought they were great sound. There was these finches, of course, as they come in. They ended up being a couple hundred cedar waxwings. Interesting, because we see them in the fall when the berries are, are ripe or overripe and uh, eating those and even get a little bit tipsy, but this is the first time in living here a long time to see huh. a big flock of pseudo waxwings. They're, they're great birds. What do you say? They're gorgeous. 
unusual this time of the year? It depends on where you are. Uh, in Minnesota, cedar waxwings are very rare in winter. We get bohemian waxwings. Uh, so depending on where you are, mm. um, but they stick with around where f- they can find fruit. Let's go to Deborah in uh, Brown Deer, Wisconsin. Hi, Deborah. Hi. Yay, birds. I love them. And um, we have a turkey in our neighborhood. It's Brown Deer, Wisconsin, north of Milwaukee, just like the suburb of Milwaukee. And I, I, it didn't look like the turkey I'd seen like two years ago wandering in our neighborhood. So, um, and it's amazing how well they fly. I, I just couldn't believe it when it was startled. But um, that's my question. I mean, that's my bird spotting, and I want yeah. to, I, I want to know how to see an owl. I want to know how to spot an owl. <laughs> okay. First of all, she's surprised how high a turkey. I've seen turkeys 100 feet up in the trees. Yeah, they, I mean, they yeah. can fly. <laughs> I almost ran over two dozen of them the other day. But. Domesticated ones have been bred for heavier meat, and right. so their wings can't pull them up. But wild turkeys do just fine, and they are becoming much more common in your neck mm. of the woods in and Wisconsin. How does she see an owl? Listen for swearing chickadees if you want to see a little owl or swearing crows. And Jay's, oh, good I, job, Drew. <laughs> I was out with my telescope the other night, and I heard the first time I've been living there 30 years, my first, whoo, I mean, the first time, like in the movies. Like a great horned <laughs> yeah, owl. Yeah, it must have soft. been that, because I hadn't heard that Cool. before. All right, let's 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 keep going, because a lot of people want to ask questions. Let's go to Pete in uh, Meriden, Connecticut. Hi, Pete. Hey, how you doing, Ira? Go ahead. Good, yes. Um, thank you for taking my call. Um Drew and Laura, um, just that caller who also called from Connecticut, um, we have a pair of of nesting uh, bald eagles uh, about a mile from my house. And uh, last time I looked, they have gone, but there's still no ice on the pond. So um, they're probably gone because of the temperature. I can't say for sure, but um, I also frequent the Connecticut River quite often, and I haven't seen the bald eagles anymore, so I can only assume that they moved off because of temperature. However, the water is still open, so that would lead me to believe that they could still get food if they wanted to, but it's probably easier. Oh, I, I guess I lost them. I lost them. You know, one of the interesting things about eagles, yeah, so that's a very astute observation. Sure, um, that the water is still open, that they could get fish, but uh, bald eagles are also great carrion eaters. Um, not so, um, not such a, a, a glorious picture of our national bird, but um, they are really opportunistic. So deer carcasses this time of year, you'll often find bald eagles on them. And uh, in some places, the place to go to see bald eagles is landfills. So there oh, you go. Wow. Let's go to uh, let's go to Morgan in Houston. Hi, Morgan. Megan. Hi, I'm sorry. Megan. It's Megan. I'm sorry. My glasses are not Why working today. Mean- um, I've been seeing this really strange-looking bird around Houston um, only this week. Um, it's about the size of a cardinal, and it also has the like the pointed feathers on its head, but it's mostly black um, and possibly some like dark speckled gray on its back. Oh um, the tip of the tail is white, and then underneath the wings, there's this super bright um, like reddish purplish color, um, and they have the prettiest song. And I've just never seen one before, and I wondered if you might know what it is. That sounds like a phenopepla, doesn't was, it, Laura? Yeah. yeah oh, my does. goodness. A who? A phenopepla. <laughs> phenopepla. <laughs> I thought oh, you were cursing or something. They're actually not too distantly related from the cedar waxwigs we yeah, were talking about earlier. So, so Megan saw a rare bird or some some. For that area, it would be. 
Oh my goodness! Yeah, I, yeah, I want to go. <laughs> <laughs> good luck, good luck, Megan. This is Science Friday of PRI Public Radio International, talking about uh, what people are seeing. It looks like things are showing up where they shouldn't be, and people are seeing weird stuff. Right, right Laura? I mean, uh, correct. Uh, like the corn crake that turned up in New York last month on Long Island. That was an exceptionally rare bird that people actually flew in from all over the country oh, to see. I'm glad you brought that up because I was looking today at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service released that uh, Wisdom, a Laysan albatross, the world's oldest known breeding bird in the wild, has returned to Midway Atoll, the National Wildlife Refuge in Battle Midway National Memorial, this is almost a 67-year-old bird. At least At 67. Least 67. The only known wild bird in the universe who is older than me. <laughs> <laughs> but you're so young at heart. Laura. Come on. She also laid an egg. Yes, she's still at reproducing. 67? And she's fledged nine babies just since 2006. How rare is that? That, uh, that her... Fecundity is really exceptional because many of them only breed every other year. Wow. So she's just doing amazingly. Let me she, go through the phones again. Tom, I'm sorry to interrupt. Thomas in Cincinnati. Hi, Thomas. Hey, Ira. How's it going? Hi there. Go ahead. Science Friday rules. You know, there's this bird that's, that's what I mean. It sounds just like a freaking cat, man. It's like... <laughs> like that? And for, for, yeah, for sure. It's not... It's like... <laughs> So but what it's, it's for sure a bird. What, what bird sure is that bird. then? You're not going to believe it. It's a catbird. <laughs> a catbird? Yep. No way. They're related to mockingbirds, and their call note is a meow. So you must you must have been sitting in the catbird seat when you heard it then, so, so to speak. Thank you. We're running out of time for phone calls. Um, your your final thoughts. Uh, Laura, and, and the bird count this year? I'm looking forward to getting home to Minnesota to do the Isabella Christmas bird count. Mm. That's uh, one way up in the north, and they, it's a guaranteed count. No pigeons, no house sparrows, and no starlings. And anything? You've been in New York now visiting? Any birds you've seen? While oh, yeah. Had? I went to Jamaica Bay to go birding. Mm. I love taking the subway to different birding spots. There wasn't anything rare this year. I spent Inauguration Day in January up in Arthur J. Hendrickson Park in Nassau County looking at a pink-footed goose. My old stomping grounds. Okay. Mm. And, and Drew? Wow. Well, you know, I am looking forward to, to the rest of this year, but this, um, you know, this count was special to me in part because I get to see old friends who love birds, but then you get new blood on occasion. You know, you get new folks coming in. So I had friends that came in from Atlanta, Georgia, and Athens, uh, Georgia, to, to help me count birds, to help us count birds. And so you know, birds, it, it amazes me how beautiful birds are and what they do for us ecologically in all sorts of ways, but then how they can bring people together. And so that's the thing that, that I absolutely love about Christmas bird counts is after you count all these birds, you spend a day working, watching birds, you get to gather around good food, good drink, and great people. So that's what I'm, I'm most happy about. Um, this uh, holiday season is the gift of birders. Mm -hmm. And it's a gift that keeps on giving, as they say. I want to thank both of you for taking time to be with us today. Drew Lannan, professor of wildlife ecology, Clemson University, and uh, Laura Eric Erickson, author of the National Geographic Pocket Guide to the Birds of North America. It's a nice little Bible there, based in uh, Duluth, Minnesota. Happy holidays to both of you. Thank you so much Happy for holidays. having us.
And uh, B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. That's that's one I say it's about all the time we have for this hour. If you missed any part of the program, you want to hear it again, subscribe to our podcast. Maybe you'll get to hear the catbird noises. Nice, nice imitations there. And, of course, you can hear us anytime on Amazon Echo or Google Home. Every day now is a Science Friday, and we're on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can also email us. Go to our website at sciencefriday.com and... Uh, Leave us a message and also join our mailing list. Have a great holiday weekend if, if you're celebrating a Merry Christmas to you. I'm Ira Flato in New York.